John chapter 16. We're going to look at the chapter John chapter 16 because it is one big thought. This is the last formal teaching that Jesus has before his death and his resurrection. And it is the culmination of the reason that Jesus came here. And Jesus is going to teach in John chapter 16 the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that we can experience joy even while mourning, peace while (laughs) everything's in a panic. We can be rejoicing in the midst of our suffering. We can have tranquility when there's chaos. So that's the big idea. Let me show you how uh, Jesus is going to do this. He's going to begin and end this teaching time by saying, I have said these things for, to you for this purpose. Wow, okay, he's trying to make that very clear. And then I want you to see how, uh, I did it with uh, different fonts, and, and I want you to see how he's, he's going to talk about the truth of the hardships of life, and at the same time he's going to talk about the truth of joy and peace that comes with the gospel, okay? Because of the gospel, we have joy and we have peace. So here we go. I'm, I'm just going to read through Jesus' teaching time. They go back and forth with the disciples, but I'm going to save us some time. So try to keep up. John chapter 16, verse 1, here how it starts. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Then in verse 16, here's the gospel. In a little while... You will see me no longer, and again, in a little while, you will see me. Verse 20 says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also will have sorrow now, but when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world And now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In in the world, you will have tribulation, but you take heart because I have overcome the world. You see how he starts at the beginning with the gospel and he's going to explain the gospel again. He's going to have, he has two points about joy and about peace. Each one will be attached to the gospel. The gospel, iconically, is an empty cross that leads to an empty tomb, and it's Jesus sitting as a judge. Those are the three pictures of the gospel that's being presented here, and I want you to see that the gospel is facts. That's what Jesus is appealing to. It's, it's history, not like wishful thinking that we could have joy or we could have peace. These are promises of God, and we're supposed to change the way we think. We're to transform the way we think based on these things that are true. The gospel, that Jesus died, the death, the resurrection, and his return. He died for our transgressions. He was raised to give us his righteousness, 
and, and, and so that we might be adopted into his family. He returns to the Father to bring justice and to serve as an intermediary for us. Jesus said, I have said these things. I have said these things so that you'll have joy in the context of mourning, that you'll have peace while there's chaos, <laughs> that you would be rejoicing even in your suffering and that you'd have tranquility when storms of life are all around you. Here's the point. <laughs> Unconditional joy is possible. Peace that transcends understanding is available to us. The Bible teaches, I have said these things, the Bible teaches that joy and peace are, are not lost or found based on circumstances around us. In fact, the Bible says that the, the trouble with the human heart is not because of things happening to it, but because of the condition of the human heart. The, the trouble that we have between each other is, is really because of the trouble that we have within us. And we have to change the soul to be able to change that. The cause of a troubled heart is a troubled heart. Circumstances, the point is this, the circumstances just reveal what's already there. So uh, we might be angry towards one another because we're really kind of maybe angry with ourselves. We lie to others because maybe we're lying to ourselves. We're very happy with ourselves, so we're going to be very happy with everyone else. Uh, there's an old proverb from India that goes like this. This helps clarify. Whatever you're full of will spill out when it's bumped. Whatever you're full of, your heart, whatever your heart is filled of will spill out once it gets bumped. Your, our reactions to events of life are a better judge of the health of our soul than our actions themselves. And the reason is because is our actions can be premeditated. They can be practiced and rehearsed. <laughs> but when we get bumped, now we're just reacting and there it is. That what was overflowing, that's what was in the soul in the first place. And life shakes us, jolts us, and it's out there for everyone to see. And if the problem is the soul and what it's filled with, the Bible says, and I have written or said these things so that the way to change is you have to change the heart and soul. You can't change the circumstances many times, but you can, this is it, the way to get well is to change the heart. And the Bible says that can happen in one way, one word. And the word is gospel. In Greek, gospel literally means, it's two words in Greek, it literally means good and news. Sometimes it's translated great news. And in the context of what Jesus is speaking of right now, it's joy-filled news. When a person hears that story of the gospel, and believes it and grasps it into their thoughts and their being, then it creates joy. Joy just happens. Here's the first truth. Joy is a consequence of the gospel. It has to be. Joy is a consequence of the gospel. Look what it says in verse 16. First the gospel, then the effect. In a little while, you will see me no longer. And again in a little while, you will see me. Here's the effect. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. This is the good news. This is the great news. And look what he says. Let me say what he, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say you may have joy because of the gospel. He says you must have joy. You will have joy. It's a certainty. It's inevitable. It is the gospel like dyes the color of our spirit and soul so that it takes on joy. It must happen. It must happen because the, the nature of God is joy. We're predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus. The image of Jesus is joy-filled. Become like Christ in all of life. Become like Christ in joy. Another reason we must have joy, it's not might have joy, is because the good news brings joy. It causes joy to happen within us. This is a little bit harder to grasp. Let me uh, steal from uh, a pastor, uh, Tim Keller. I love what he uses to help illustrate this. He says, what if like the human soul were like a stringed instrument? And we were originally made in the very image of God, so we were perfectly tuned. We're, we've fallen, and so we're, we've fallen out of tune. And from that point forward, our souls are listening for that perfect tune. That perfect tune is the gospel story itself. And when we hear anything that sounds remotely like that, we, we, we experience joy. We have this insatiable and uncontrollable response to a ver any version of the gospel story because it, it harkens back to the Garden of Eden and we go, joy, we have joy in us. It just comes out. We want to watch that event again and we want to hear that story again. It's like perfect tune is, in the business, perfect tune is concert A. That's how, it, that's how you standardize the string instrument. Concert A, it's 440 hertz. And when that's in tune, then everything else can be in tune, but that that concert eight, that's the gospel story. That God's son breaks through heaven, becomes man, has this crazy upside down reverse psychology judo move where he conquers death by dying. He defeats evil with the power of love. He turns evil uh, on its head and, 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 and leads this revolt and, and takes on this revolution and he will return to bring justice to all, absolute justice to all, and end all suffering. That's concert A. That's 440 hertz. That's what our souls are listening for. That's what we are meant to be tuned towards. And in the argument from desire, this is Tim Keller again saying, when we watch a movie or read a book, and the, the storyline, I don't know, it, it's like victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat, or, or hope comes outside the boundaries of of any expectation. The cavalry comes, and we didn't know we even had a cavalry. When we see that, when we watch that, we read that, and we're, we're struck by it, it's because it is the storylines, the plot line that writers and creatives can't get away from of the plot line of the gospel. And that's why we watch these and re-watch, re-read these storylines, because they cause us to have joy. It's a story that's implanted within us and we long for it. It's the echo of the gospel. So when the gospel itself is told to us, yeah, when we hear that news, when we, di our, we digest it in our hearts and souls, when we believe it and realize it, our souls 
are on tune. Now our souls are at concert A, 44, 440 hertz. We're in harmony with God. And when that happens, Jesus says this, oh, you're going to have joy. You'll have peace. Like you can't even imagine. And history proves it. Early church, Acts chapter 2, they hear the gospel story and they start breaking bread with one another and sharing all possessions. And onlookers were struck by the joy that they had towards one another. Jesus, Jesus tells us what this joy is like, this overpowering joy in the context of suffering. And the illustration he uses is a woman giving birth. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world and so with you. Now, I mean, look at this story, this illustration, this metaphor. When Jesus is talking about this woman giving birth, uh, when, uh, there, was a, there was a phrase for uh, natural childbirth. Remember, you know, this, the phrase for natural childbirth back then? It was just childbirth. They just called it childbirth. Because that's all there was. There, there's no anesthesia. It's just bite the bullet. Bite the bullet. That's, you just clench down on this bullet. You'll, that's all you have. <laughs> I remember when I was reading this, I thought bite the bullet. When I was in fourth, third grade, I backed in. I, I turned right into this low-hanging pipe. And it gashed my head, kind of knocked me out. And when I got up, my, head, my face was covered in blood. And so was my chest. And my brother was standing next to me. And he... And he said, we need to get home. He makes me run home. So you can imagine just. Ugh. And so when we got home, we had chain link fences back then. Uh, we come up on the, on the backyard of my house and my dad's having this pretty big fighter pilot and wife party in the backyard. And so in the military, you do whatever you can not to go to the hospital. It's 45 minutes away. Then you wait two, two days to get seen. And so, so we're not going to break up this party. So my dad surrounds me with his pilot buddies. And one of the guys says, oh, I was a medic in Vietnam. And I'm looking at him, my fourth grade brother, both of us like, you are a liar is what you are. They take me into the bathroom and they're kind of cleaning stuff up. And you know, what are we going to do? And so one of the guys goes and gets my dad's uh, uh, colt. Uh, 1911 and pops a, a bullet, a, a round out of it, grabs it in midair and says, here, bite on the bullet. And so I'm surrounded with three or four guys. They shave my head, tape and stitch my head back together again. And my brother and I are off playing. Next day, it's Monday. I go to school with a bloody patch over my head. It's half shaved. And my third grade school teacher, what happened? I don't know. I mean, one of my dad's friends was a medic. And so I'm like, okay. There were no social workers, apparently, in 1970-whatever. It's the only, I don't know why I'm telling you the story. I think it's because that's the only time I've had to bite a bullet in pain. Um, and I'm glad I'm, I got this hairpiece just to cover that scar up right now. Here's the point of Jesus' story, okay? I have you back now. That he doesn't say that the woman's pain is gone in childbirth. He says she forgets her pain. She is in pain. She delivers the baby. The pain doesn't stop, but the joy comes and she forgets the pain. It's not the absence of pain. It's something that overshadows the pain. 
Some of you have been there and experienced this. You probably know the story. A woman in labor, a lot of screaming, a lot of pain. And then the moment the child is born, she becomes feverishly committed to seeing that child. I want to see that baby's face in the old days. I want to know if it's a boy or a girl. Is this a healthy baby? I, just, I would love to hear this baby cry. And while she's consumed and captivated by that child, good news. Is that not good news? Is that not the gospel for a mother? And the pain continues, but it's forgotten. It's overlooked. It's overshadowed. Christian joy is the roar of suffering continues, but the gospel message makes that background noise. That's what Jesus is saying. Oh, it's still there, but you just, you don't care as much as you used to. That's the power of gospel joy. The world, the joy the world can offer to us, it is, it's mutually exclusive from anything bad happening. If a person wants joy in their life, they have to get rid of the pain and the suffering in their life. And they've got to do something with it because they can't exist together. They can't coexist. So the, the, what do we do? We, like, we anesthetize ourselves, right? We try to forget it. Drugs, alcohol, something to pacify our aloneness, whatever it might be. And addictions are up. People are trying to get joy by trying to forget the pain. We try to avoid pain. We try to just uh, stay distracted as busy as we possibly can. Or if anything causes us sorrow or inconvenience, we just quit. Get out of that. I don't need this in my life. And quitting is up like at levels we haven't seen before. Another way to deal with it is to say it doesn't matter. We just deny it. A lot of modern atheistic stoicism is very popular right now. It's way up. Oh, it just doesn't matter. And the point is, all of these artificial worldly methods of attaining joy are trying to turn your brain off by numbing it or distracting it or <laughs> just coming up with cute little sayings. Oh, it'll be better. Yeah, the sun will come out tomorrow. You know, it's, it's only a day away. You can bet your bottom dollar. It'll be better tomorrow as long as you stay busy and sing that song. But boy, if that music stops, you're going to feel it. The power of Christian joy is it's comfortable with sorrow and suffering. Look what he says in verse 22. So, also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I'm coming back from the resurrection. You're going to see me. The joy that you'll receive on that moment, oh, that cannot be taken away. You'll be sorrowful for a little while. But once you experience the fullness of the gospel, the resurrection and my return, what happens is your soul is now in tune. 440 hertz. Yeah. There it is, concert A. That's the power of the gospel. Overpowering sorrow that the Son of God has become man and came and took my place on a cross so that he might give me his righteousness, that I might receive his innocence, 
returns to the Father so he could intercede on my behalf and then await the Father's command to bring absolute justice to all of mankind. <laughs> that joy, it's not hopeful. It's real is the point. He's trying to get us to turn up the volume of, of concert A in our lives because it's available to us. Christian joy, it like loves the company. It's this big suburban. Come on in, sorrow and despair and hardship. I've got room for you. It's not a shallow joy. It's a deep joy that runs so deep and tranquil that it can enjoy the fullness of the despairing nature of life. Good news. Great news. The gospel, when it's enjoyed to its full, when we believe it to be true, we are born again. And when we're born again, we get a heart and soul that has this capacity to have peace while there's pain. And we can have joy in the midst of, of mourning. mourning, mourning things that we enjoy. That's why Paul says, always rejoicing, yet full of sorrow. Paul says in Corinthians, always rejoicing, yet full of sorrow, not mutually exclusive. That's the power of joy. And Jesus promises this to these disciples and to us, and the promise is fulfilled. He says in this chapter, we'll look at it next week, but he says, look, because you're going to be a follower of mine, let me tell you what's going to happen next. You will be hunted. You'll be persecuted. You will be martyred for me. They're going to kill you slow and painfully and probably in a way that's absolutely humiliating. And while all of that is true, you'll be singing praise songs. And they did. It was painful. It was humiliating. But you know what was greater still? The joy of the truth of the gospel. So... <laughs> Life is bad. We're, we lose love. We lose our ability to like, make income or produce. We lose security in some way. We sometimes uh, experience injustice in ways that cannot be restored. And in the midst of all of that, we are sad and we are angry. But it's not, it's, it's not supposed to have the potential to alter us, to change our temperament. Because we're not riding the waves of circumstances. We're grounded in this rock. This great news, this joy news is the foundation of our love and our security and uh, the promise of future justice. And Jesus says, and no one can take that away from you. I'm going to give you this joy. You'll rejoice when you see me resurrected. And that joy, it can't be taken. So some of you are probably thinking, well, I want some of that joy. <laughs> Maybe I, I'm not getting that like I should. Maybe I should just pray. I need more joy. That's not how joy works. Let me show you two helpful things that we need to do to experience the fullness of the joy that we have. Because you, can't, you shouldn't pray for more joy. It's all there. It's been fully deposited upon your acceptance of the gospel. You receive the righteousness of Christ, and that 
joy is, is full and complete. What happens is we stifle joy. And sometimes we have to practice disciplines. We have to change the way we act. We have to change the way we think. We have to do a little behavioral therapy and some cognitive therapy. We have to do our part to awake, not awaken the joy, just lit to hear. Our, our souls can get callous, which leads to my first point. Our first practice is innocence must be maintained. Innocence can't be lost, but it must be maintained. And what that means is that we inherit the gift of innocence from Jesus Christ. We inherit his innocence, but a bad conscience keeps joy from being heard. It, it muffles it. It's, it stifles it. It smothers the experience. And so we have to do what we can do to obey the commands of God. That's why all the epistles, the letters in the Bible, they start with all this theology of justification. And then at, towards the end, it says, now obey. <laughs> you still have to obey. You're made righteous. Now act like you're righteous. So abstain from all sorts of evil. Keep your soul from becoming calloused. Make short lists between you and relationships that you enjoy. Positively, like act out on like the hunches that you receive from, from the Spirit of God. In my case, it's usually to apologize or to take responsibility. Something that you don't want to do <laughs> that maybe you should do. Sometimes it just means hearing God's Spirit and to encourage one another. But the first discipline, the point is, to enjoy the fullness of joy, you have to maintain the innocence that you've received at salvation. And the second one is you have to meditate on what's true. These are, these are truths that we make ours. The, the voices in our head, you know the voices we're talking about, right? Okay, those are only supposed to be saying true things. They're not supposed to be riding like the, the, the winds of change in our life. Christianity is a thinking faith. You are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to think right is what Jesus is saying here. Meditate, and when I say meditate, it means it's like learning a new sport or a new skill, something that needs motor skills, not just like a foreign language, but think about it like this. When you're rehearsing, you're recollecting, uh, so you, you think and then you practice and then you, you think about it a little more and then you practice. Have you ever done something like learning to dance or learning an instrument where you just you find yourself just walking to work or something and, and you're thinking out loud, oh, step, step, kick. I don't know anything about dancing. I don't know. Or, I don't know. A, B, C. I don't even know notes to explain. But anyway, if you're... <laughs> It's supposed to make sense. This is supposed to help you understand. So, so you're constantly taking thoughts captive, thoughts that are true. You are his child. Talk to him, God, like he's your father. Yes, transcendent Yahweh. But he also became like flesh so that you could call him Abba, Daddy. Talk to him. Jesus says that. I'm in prayer. Talk to him all the time about everything. Truths that he loves you and he can't love you less. And so you can bring things up. He is your father. He's changed your diapers a lot. The idea here is, is in contrast to worldly joy that's fickle and, and, 
and bound by circumstances, it's the flag whipping around. You can't change your emotions. You change your thoughts and you will change your emotions. So like you, you say, I don't, you don't, you don't say I want a softer heart. You go after your thoughts. Don't say, oh, go, oh God, soften my heart. It's like, no, you, it's like learning piano. You think, you practice, you think, you practice, you think, you practice. And as you start taking on the thoughts that are true, you're meditating on the truth of the gospel, then your heart softens. You'll be chasing emotions the rest of your life. So instead, meditate. Summary, real quick, is joy is there. It's all there. It's given to us in the power and the depth and the meaning of the gospel and all the promises that come along with that. But we must maintain our innocence and we must meditate on these truths about the power of the joy of the resurrection and boom, no one will take that away. The second part of chapter 16 is very similar to the first part, but now he's, Jesus is going to talk about peace. Look what he says. Peace is the conquest of the gospel. <laughs> and watch this. Same outline. He's going to give the gospel the historical account, and, and our souls are going to be drawn to that because that's, that's concert A. And then he's going to say, and that's going to produce peace that can't be lost. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. Four points. Look at what's happened, all these movements, that's the gospel message. That's the plot line. And look, look four distinctives here. I came from the Father, right? I, I, I entered the world. I'm leaving the world and then I'm going to the Father. All huge doctrines. Libraries have been written on each one of those points. I came from the Father. That's the preexistence of Christ. That's the deity of Jesus. He existed before he was born. I entered the world. That's the incarnation of Christ. The hypostatic union, Jesus was both God and man. The creator and the maintainer of all things becomes flesh. He can skip galaxies like boys skip rocks on ponds. And he needs to be nursed by his mother. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And why did this immeasurable humiliation take place? Because he says, I'm leaving this world. It's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That he came to die. He was born to die. It was the only way we could be made right in the eyes of the holiness of Yahweh. And then he says, uh, I'm going back to the Father. He's going, to be, he's going to be at the right side of the Father. He will take his role as our intercessor. He's going to be our advocate. And he's waiting for the command to go and break out justice and be the judge of all things. There's the gospel in a sentence. That's the plot line. So what happens? Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, there's going to be tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The peace I'm about to give you, if you believe this storyline, if it envelops your soul and takes over, it's stronger than any of the tribulation. It'll be stronger than the persecution that you'll experience. So he says, take heart, take heart. You look at a modern translation, it'll say, there. In light of the storyline, in light of the peace I'm giving you, in light of the transcendent nature of joy, 
I dare you to live a life consistent with the gospel. I've overcome the world. I dare you to believe in the promises that are attached to the historical events that are described in the Bible. I dare you to obey what God has said. He's saying, I, I dare you to maintain your innocence. Going back to our two disciplines, I dare you to maintain your innocence, to avoid all that is evil and pursue all that is good because Jesus is a conquering king. Just obey the king. I dare you to. And I dare you to <laughs> meditate on the things that are true and live it out. That God so loved you that he would send his only begotten son if you were the only person here. Not to condemn you, but that you might have eternal life with him. So why not live like that? Why not live like there's nothing else God could possibly do to show you how much he loves you? Why not dare to live like he's returning and he will bring justice? In a time right now, where the abuse of power with people in power, with smug arrogance, mm, you know, right? Like generally I can really get twisted around the injustice that's taking place. And it costs me peace. And some of you have personally experienced injustice that may or may not be reconciled in this lifetime. And if you dare to live with the, with the promises of the gospel, this, the fourth one, that he's returning, you can live with peace. If you stop and pause and wait for justice on your terms and your timing, it's going to cost you. Peace. It will cost you peace. So... The application is obvious to tune our hearts to this concert A, 440 hertz gospel story where we're in harmony with the heart of God. And when we're in harmony with the heart of God, we'll experience <laughs> unimaginable joy, unquenchable peace. Jesus says, I dare you to do everything, give it everything to your walk with God. Elizabeth Elliot loves to tell us a little fairy tale. Maybe she wrote it uh, about life in, with the gospel. It's about a beggar man that's sitting on the side of the road. He's got a little bowl of rice and he knows the king comes by. And so he's waiting for the king. And sure enough, the entourage comes and the king stops. And the beggar lifts up his bowl of rice asking for a little something from the king. And the king looks down at him and says, no, I want something from you. And as you would imagine, the beggar is annoyed by that. Like the king has everything, more than he would ever hope for. He's come to take. So the beggar complies, and he reaches in his bowl and gives him three grains of rice. And the king reaches down and grabs that and thanks him for that and goes on his way. Not long after that, the beggar is digging through his bowl of rice and finds three hard surfaces. They turn out to be three little nuggets of gold. The king wasn't 
asking to get. He's asking to give. That's the nature of God. And like that beggar, if I'd have just given him everything, if I would have just given him everything, that king's not a taker. He's a giver. More than you could ask or imagine, overflowing. It's always the best robe, isn't it? It's always the fatted calf. He's never asking us to sacrifice. He's asking us to surrender. I have told you these things so that you would not lose heart. Joy and peace that cannot be lost and are transcendent in a time of unpredictable misery. Jesus says, I'm that rock, I'm that flagpole, I'm that lighthouse, stay with me and give me everything. That's the last teaching of Jesus. We'll see one more next week. Let's pray. Well, now we know I have told you these things so that you will not fall away. So, Lord, I'd ask that you would help us understand the fullness of the gospel and how it applies to our anxiety or our anger, our rage, the, the things, the, the nature of our souls that's, that spill out when we get bumped that aren't peace and joy. <laughs> and when those things make themselves known to us, we would find ourselves repenting trying to find our safety or our security or our worth in things other than the gospel itself. So now that it's even more clear than maybe we've seen before, I'd ask that you would help us grasp that anew, commit to innocence or another word, holiness, and find ourselves not chasing our emotions, but rather uh, seeking the truths of the Bible and committing those to memory letting those tapes play in our minds and not the distractions of the world. So we are grateful for the power of the gospel in our lives. Lord, I'd ask that you'd help us unleash that power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.